Now, there is a promise attached with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the promise is so relevant tonight. But Jesus said, he that hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell, the winds blew, and the floods beat on that house, and it did not fall because it was founded on a rock. Now, that's the promise at the, t- that's the, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the end. Jesus wraps it up with that promise. Conversely, he that hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, I will liken him to a foolish man who built his house on sand. And he don't know it until the rain falls and the winds blow and the floods come and beat on that house. And Jesus said, it fell. And I've always found it interesting. He said, great was its fall. You know why he used the word great? Because any time a life crashes, it's a great tragedy. Amen? Amen? So he's talking about the house that we build our life on. Because we're all philosophers by nature. We all have philosophy uh, tonight. We all have the way we look at the world, the way we look at life, the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at other people. Um, and your philosophy will decide how you act. And if your philosophy is anything other than what Jesus told us to live by, then Jesus said eventually the pressures of life are going to cause that house to crash. But if you build your life around what he taught, then you're going to survive the storm. So let's read Matthew 5, 13 through 20, and um, we're going to tackle those verses tonight, salt, light, and real righteousness. Let's look at what Jesus said. You can read it out loud with me if you want to. It's up there on the screen for you, I do believe. All right. You are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everybody will praise your heavenly Father. Then verse 17, he shifts gears and starts talking about the law. He says in verse 17, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you're going to be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anybody who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, where we wrap it up tonight. But I warn you, Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. That's strong. Now, I'm going to tackle those verses because there's two two themes really here tonight. Now, last time we talked about how the Sermon on the Mount contains the guidelines for how we, as children of the kingdom of God now are to live, all right? This is our instruction manual. The Bible teaches 
that at the moment of our salvation, listen carefully to this, God delivered us or transferred us or moved us from one thing to another. He took us out of the dominion of Satan and he transferred us into the kingdom of God's dear son. So we change kingdoms. You know, most people don't realize the enormity of what happens when you get saved. You don't just get fire insurance for heaven. Something major happens right on the spot the moment you believe. God takes you and really yanks you out of the tyranny of Satan's power and sets you down in the authority and blessing of the kingdom of God. So you go from one kingdom to another, from one authority to another, from one master to another. When it says he delivered us out of the domain of darkness and transferred us, I love words, especially Bible words. Oh, they matter. They're so power-packed. The word delivered means rescued. He rescued us. And domain refers to the authority or the power of darkness. We're literally under darkness's authority until Jesus literally rescued us out from under his power. And he transferred us, literally moved us from one place to another place. So we're in another kingdom tonight. Now, the kingdom that we're in is called the kingdom of God. And that kingdom has new rules for living, new precepts, new principles, new ways of looking at things that we've got to learn if we're going to function successfully in this new kingdom. Again, most people don't stop and really think about um, Christianity this way. We, we say, I got saved. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means I'm going to heaven. Well, that's true. We are going to heaven. But in the meantime, we get to live right here on earth in time and space. Amen? And we're either going to win or lose, have victory or be defeated. And so how do you walk in victory? Well, you've got to walk according to the way Jesus taught us to live. And if you want to find what he, you know, essentially what he taught us about how to live in the kingdom of God, it is encapsulated in the Sermon on the Mount. So being in a new kingdom, we're subject to new laws, new expectations, a new master, a new king, new power, new authority. Now, when you get into the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see how practical it is. Because let me just show you some of the things that Jesus deals with. He deals with anger, forgiveness, lust, money, worry, relationships, prayer, murder, fasting, marriage, divorce, children, faith, enemies, judgmentalism, heaven, hell, and on it goes. Can you believe that's in three chapters? Now, how many of you could say, well, those are some of the things, that, that's where I live. Right? See, it's intensely practical. This is not, you know, some, some uh, ethereal, uh, you know, poet-type person with his head in the clouds just spewing out pretty things that sound spiritual. Jesus is literally telling us how to live when the rubber meets the road. He's telling us how to live. So he's not only our Savior, but I want you to say with me, he's not only my Savior, but he's my teacher. He's my philosopher. He's my counselor. Oh, we've got to, we've got to embrace Jesus as teacher. You know, it, it, it amazes me. I went through college, a lot of college, but in my bachelor's degree, 
at UNT, uh, you know, I took some philosophy and, and, and these other things that where, where you're, you're supposed to learn how to live life and how to view life. And it used to amaze me. You had all these people in history, you know, all the Greek philosophers, the German philosophers, the, the Roman philosophers, all these philosophers in history, but not once did they ever mention the greatest philosopher who ever lived, Jesus. No one understands life like Jesus. So the first thing we notice in verses 13 through 16 is the way that Jesus defined his followers. He defined you and me. It says, it begins with two you are's. He says, you are, you are, you are salt, you are light. Now let me give you a fact of life. Something or someone is defining Everyone listening to my voice right now, let me say that again. Someone or something is defining every one of you in this room, all of you watching on video, all of you listening by radio, somebody or something is defining you and has defined you already. The way you view yourself, your call, your purpose, the meaning of your life has been defined and is being defined. And it's either going to be defined... By the world, the flesh, the devil, or God. What you believe about yourself, the way you see yourself. Let me give you some examples. Whether you came from God or from evolution, how big is that? No wonder we've lost an entire generation that believe they came from monkeys. Evolution really does make a monkey out of you. Whether you are custom designed by a caring creator or haphazardly spawned by mindless, apathetic, accidental evolution, whether you have value or not, purpose or not, a destiny or not, whether you are lovable or not, purposeful or not, whether you are likable or not or talented or not, these things and more are being and have already been communicated to you. And whatever you believe about God and about yourself, however you have been defined, totally decides your future. This is why we see God. This is what I preached to all those graduates at CFNI. This is what I told them. This is why we see God over and over again defining those he calls before he ever releases them into his calling. Watch this. God calls, then he defines, then he releases. He cannot release you with any real promise until he has first defined you, told you who you are in him. Until you know who you are in him, you're never going to go knock the ball out of the park for him. Come on, everybody. Let me give you an example. The angel, we read in the book of Judges, the angel, a mighty angel appeared to Gideon. And here's what he said to Gideon. He said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. You know what? Gideon looked behind him to see who God was talking about. His immediate response, I want you to listen to his response. His immediate response to the angel revealed how he had been defined down. He said, well, my family is the weakest 
in my clan, and I am the least. Listen to what he's saying. I'm the least of the least. I'm the least of the weakest. What are you doing calling me? Because I am least. I am little. I am nothing. I'm no one. It took God a while to convince Gideon that in him he could do anything. Until then, watch this, having been defined down, he had also been defined out of usefulness to God. When God saved me in jail, let me tell you, I thought this much of me. I saw no promise, no, no purpose, no future for me whatsoever. And the very first thing the Lord began to do with me once he got me was show me how he had custom designed me for his purpose, his plan, his calling, and that I figured in his great big plan of redemption and that I had value in him. And when I began to see that, fire began to burn in my heart to count for God. When Jesus called Peter, the first thing he did was to define him in light of who he was in God. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Peter, which when translated means a stone. Notice, the very first thing Jesus did with Peter was define him in light of who he was in God. Peter was compulsive. He was emotional. Uh, he he, he, He spoke before he ever thought. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. He was a lifelong fisherman, a lifelong blue-collar worker. And now, all of a sudden, here's Jesus calling him on the seashore, and he starts defining him up in light of his call and his purpose in God. He said to Simon Peter, yeah, you've been unstable as water. You know, you're not real mature. You've got a lot of problems, a lot of issues, Peter. But one day, Peter, you're going to be a rock. You're going to be stable. And you're going to be full of strength, Peter. And you know what Peter said? Wow, look at who I am in God. And so one day, what do we see? Well, first, he made a lot of mistakes, kept on making mistakes. He stumbled. He denied the Lord. Uh, He was always, always messing up. He, he, He was the most difficult of the 12. But one day, they carried all the sick into the streets. Everybody who had a demon, everybody who was afflicted, everybody who was diseased, who was ill, they carried them into the streets and stacked them up alongside the curb, lest the shadow of Peter fall on them. And the Bible says they were all healed. Just by his shadow, the anointing that was on his life. What was he? He was a rock. He became what Jesus told him he was. I'm going to say it again. He became what Jesus told him he was. See, if you believe you can't, you won't. But if you believe you can, you will. But but we've got to take it beyond that. I'm not just uh, Norman Vincent Peelish positive confessionism here. I'm going to put what Paul did. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so here we are with Simon Peter. He did the same thing with the other disciples. He, He meets them. He calls them. And the first thing he did was he said, follow me. And I'm going to make you to become something you would never have been without me. Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. That word become, another powerful word, it means to emerge, to come into being. Jesus is not saying that he will teach the disciples how to persuade, how to give a good speech, or how to win over people. That is not what he's saying, I'm going to make you fishers of men. 
He's telling his disciples that in following him, he's going to cause them to become something they would never have otherwise been. Soul winning is not just something they will do, it is something they will be. I think of a butterfly emerging from a cocoon. Used to be a caterpillar just going around eating everything in sight. But all of a sudden it goes into that cocoon, a miracle happens, and a butterfly emerges, something totally different, totally transformative has happened, and that's the idea here. Jesus said to those disciples, follow me, and you're going to undergo a transformation. I'm going to make you to be soul winners. It's what you're going to be, and because it's what you are, it's what you're going to do. I don't just preach, I am a preacher. If you took me out of a church and I could not get to any people, I would preach to the walls. I would preach the word of God. I know because I've been there. I've done it. Not walls, but the woods. When I had no people, the woods, I went out there and just preached the word. And I, to this day, believe squirrels were saved and birds because I really let it go. I remember what I preached, Isaiah 61. I I preached Isaiah. I had to let the word out. And and you know why I am a preacher? Because I started following the one who said, follow me, Jeff, and I'm going to make you to become something you would never have been without me. And and what does he say to you and me? He says, follow me. Just follow me. Start following my my footprints. Let me into your life fully, and I'm going to make you to become. Ginomai is the Greek word. Ginomai. It means means to become something or to emerge, something to emerge that was never there before. That's what Jesus does. He doesn't give us a bunch of rules and regulations to walk around like robots. He totally transforms us on the inside. And so starting in verse 13 of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commences his defining project with us. Here's what he says to all of us. He says, you are, you are salt. What's he doing? He's defining us. Let me tell you who you are in the kingdom of God. You're salt. You are light. Now let's take salt first. What is salt used for? It's used for three things. To preserve something from decay, like meat. To add flavor to something otherwise tasteless and to make somebody thirsty. Jesus says, never lose the saltiness of the presence and the testimony of God on your life because you are salt. I told those graduates at CF&I, there was 400 of them and they were in blue uh, gowns, kind of purple gowns. and, And I said, I want all of you to imagine a great big kingdom salt shaker and you're in it purple salt. And God is going to take you. When you graduate today, there were 62 nations represented there. God's going to take you in his great big kingdom salt shaker, and he's going to salt you all over planet earth. And when you land wherever he puts you, He has put you there so that you would represent, so that you would exude, so that you would emanate, so that you would release the love, the power, and the knowledge, and the light of Christ into a lost and dying world. You are salt. Let's try this together. Say with me, I am salt. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are salt. Now turn the other way and say, how salty are you? Now turn the other way and say, you're going to be a lot saltier after tonight. Okay. 
One commentator writes this about salt. Here's what Jesus was thinking about. In the eastern countries of Jesus' day, the salt used was impure or mingled with vegetable or earthly substances, not, not like the salt we use, so that it might lose, literally lose the whole of its saltness. And a considerable quantity of earthy dirt remains. And so it was good for nothing if it lost its salty flavor. Good for nothing, except that it was used, the salt that lost its flavor in Jesus' day, it was used to place in paths or walks, or it was used as gravel. And this is what Jesus had in mind. The idea here is that Christians, you, the salt of the earth, by your words and your example, are to restrain the world from moral corruption by bringing down the blessing of God in answer to their prayers, by their influence in Christ's likeness, Christians restrain the progress of sin. Let me ask you a question tonight. Do you see any churches or denominations losing their saltiness in this day? How do you lose your saltiness? Here's one good way. Decide that you're going to agree with the world and reject the word of God. Decide that what matters to you more than anything else is the nod of approval from the world rather than the nod of approval from God. When you, when you and I say, well, you know what, I'm just not going to be a standout believer. I'm going to be a silent witness, and I don't know that I'm going to take a stand on the word. I, can't we all just get along? And, and, and you know, so, so I'm just going to agree with the world and be one of them and love on them and, 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 and um compromise the scripture in order to show them how much I love them. But John said, love not the world nor the things that are in the world for all that is in the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are not from the Father, but they are from the world, and the world passes away in the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God will abide forever. And whoever loves the world is the enemy of God. But, oh, we're watching whole denominations lose their saltiness. As soon as you no longer influence people towards God, away from sin, into a righteous life, under the righteousness of Christ, as soon as you go that direction, your saltiness is gone. And you know what's going to happen in that kind of church? Men are going to stomp on you. Christianity is going to lose its respect. The church is no longer respected. He said, if you let your saltiness go, you're going to lose the lampstand that Revelation talks about. You're going to lose it, and, and your influence is gone. I have, I have a prayer. I pray it often. I say, Lord, make me, make me influential for Jesus. Help our church to be influential for Jesus. Now, for that to happen, here's what I know we're going to have to do. We've got to stay with the Word, and with the God of the Word, and the Christ of the Word, and refuse to bow, bend, break, or back down in the face of public opposition to the Word of truth. And, and if we'll do that, if we will do that and, and take our stand, then we're going to remain salty. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to make people thirsty for Jesus. It's going to drive back. It's going to restrain moral corruption. Who do you think is standing most strongly against this stunning moral decline that we're seeing in America? That we're at the place where the Supreme Court is about to tell us whether or not they redefine marriage. Where do they get off thinking 
that any nine human beings can go back and redefine what God has said you cannot change. Jesus said, Jesus said, have you not read that in the beginning he created them male and female? And a man shall leave his father and, and, be, and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And, and so in the beginning, that's what God made. And now the Supreme Court of the United States is very possibly, I hate to say it, but probably going to come out and say that, oh, well, no, we're going to change all that. And it's not just between a man and a woman, but two women, two men, uh, because we can't discriminate. God discriminates. But that's where we are in this country. Now, who is standing up against that and speaking to that and, 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 and saying, if you go there, we can't go with you? Christians who are salt, who are salty and haven't given up the word of God. Buckle your seatbelts, church, because if they decide that way, it's going to change the entire nation overnight. And we're all going to know what it feels like to be persecuted for the sake of the Lord. Amen. Name names, called names. And Jesus, blessed are you when men will persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice for so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. Uh, so uh, I'm just saying uh, the way things are, are, are looking in this country right now, oh, God needs salty Christians. Amen. Salty Christians, just oozing the kingdom of God. Stick me with a pen and Jesus comes out. Amen? Amen. Now, I also said, you're the lie of the world. Can we say that together? I'm the lie of the world. He said, well, didn't Jesus say that about himself? Yes, he did. He said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is like the sun. Jesus is like the sun, which burns of itself with a power underived from anything else. But the moon, on the other hand, is a reflector of the sun. Without the sun, we couldn't see the moon. The moon has no inherent power within itself, but it reflects the glory and light of the sun. So the church apart from Christ, is nothing and has no light apart from Christ. But when Jesus is among us, we reflect his light and his glory. Paul said as much, listen to what he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So God lit a light in us. God poured his light into our heart. And now we're called to be reflectors of that light and of that glory. When Stephen preached his one and only message before the, the angry, hostile Sanhedrin, it says in the Bible, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And I love this, Jesus standing. He was standing up for his first martyr. Standing. Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. When every other mention of him in the Bible says he's sitting at the right hand of God, he was standing up to welcome his first martyr. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that the entire council of religious leaders, it says in Acts 6.15, saw his face as the face of an angel. Why did they see that? Because Stephen was reflecting the glory that he saw. 
You know what every one of those billions of water droplets up in the sky, somebody came up to me tonight and said, oh, Pastor Jeff, I saw a rainbow tonight. You know what a rainbow is? It's just a bunch of reflectors. It's billions of water droplets that are receiving light and bending that light through themselves into colors that we can understand. The church is a rainbow. We take the light of the glory of God and it bends through us and goes out and is revealed to a lost and dying mankind in a way they can understand. Jesus' main concern on this point, what he's really concerned about here in Sermon on the Mount is that we might hide our lights out of fear, shame, or intimidation. And he uses absurdity to illustrate his concern, which he does often in Sermon on the Mount. He uses absurdity to make a point. He says, you can't hide a city that's on top of a hill, can you? And you don't light a candle only to put it under a bowl. His light in us is meant to be seen, highlighted, put on a marquee. And you know what the marquee is? Your face, your countenance, your words, your lifestyle. You're a billboard for the kingdom of God. Now, that scares some of you. It scares me. Because that's a heavy responsibility. But that's what we are. That's what he's telling us right here. He said, let your light so shine, shine in such a way that men will see it. We're not supposed to be silent witnesses. That, that is a contradiction in terms anyway. What's a silent witness? Hey, what are you doing? I'm being silent. Doing what? Witnessing. Say what? We're to be, we are to be, we are to be out there with the light and the truth and the testimony of Jesus. So the pastor is just not my personality. I don't do that. Well, it's maybe not yours, but it's, it's the personality of the one that's in you. Okay. Now next, so say with me, let's, let's do it together. I am salt. I am light. You're the only Jesus some people are ever going to see. And he sees it by your saltiness, by your light. That's what they see. Now, Jesus is going to switch gears here because Sermon on the Mount is broken down into themes. So that first theme was really our testimony of him to the world. But now he's going to talk about a whole new theme, and it's going to take us all the way to the end of this first chapter, chapter 5. He begins by addressing a misconception that was apparently floating around about him, And here was the misconception, that he had come to do away with the law and do away with the prophets. That was the misconception. Jesus said, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but I came to fulfill them. Now, the law and the prophets essentially covers the entire Old Testament. You hold your Bible in your hand. You hold that Bible up. It's two covenants, Old Covenant, New Covenant. That old covenant is the law and the prophets, essentially. That's what it is. So they were saying, oh, well, now that Jesus, the Messiah, is here, all of that is going to pass away and become irrelevant. We won't need that law anymore. We don't need the prophets anymore. Jesus said, no, you've got it all wrong. Not only did I not come to destroy them or do away with them, but I came to literally fulfill them. 
as the chapter progresses, we're going to see that one way Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets is by taking a rule, like one of the Ten Commandments, and he shapes it into a principle to live by. Here's what you're going to hear him say in the Sermon on the Mount over and over again. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, the prophets, but I say to you, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, but I'm now saying to you. Now it sounds like he's doing away with them and saying something else, doesn't it? But that's not what he's doing at all. When he says, but I say to you, what Jesus does is he adds depth of understanding to the law that they were all familiar with, always making the commandment a matter of the heart, not just a matter of action. If you lived in Jesus' day before he came along, everything was do the right thing, act the right way, walk the right way, talk the right way, observe the various feasts and rituals and Sabbath and all of that. Righteousness was reduced to the way you behaved. And the way you behaved was what revealed whether or not you were righteous. But here's what Jesus came along to tell us. It's not what you do that matters most. It's why you do what you do that matters most. Let me give you an example in chapter 5. Uh, the whole chapter, after when we get to this particular verse, once he's done with salt and light, as it moves on, chapter 5 is the equivalent of a spiritual EKG. It's a heart test. Chapter 5 is a heart test. Let me give you an example. With the sixth commandment, how many of you know what the sixth commandment is? You shall not murder. Right? Jesus says... You have heard that it was said by them of old time, you should not murder or shall not murder. But I say to you, now watch what he does. I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause is on the road that leads to murder. What did Jesus do? He took the commandment and he fleshed it out. He gave it width, height, and depth. He gave it three dimensions. He moved it from how you're behaving or not behaving, are you killing somebody or not? And he took it deeper and said, let me tell you what leads to murder. If you are angry in your heart and you don't deal with it, that's how you end up killing people. So Jesus took the commandment and took it deeper and wider and gave it greater meaning. I've told you I watch Forensic Files all the time. I'm hooked on it. I don't like anything Hollywood writes. I don't watch anything that Hollywood writes. I haven't been to a movie. I, I told Kathy, I said, wow, I hadn't thought about this, but I haven't been to a movie in probably four years. I don't like supporting them because of all the stuff they come off and say. They're so anti-Christian, anti-Christ. So I just choose to not go. But I do like the Forensic Files, Dateline ID. Are you ready? I mean, there's all kinds of crazy ones. I mean, this one channel, in my house, it's 192. And it's all real stuff that really happened. Actors are, yeah, acting it out, but they're, they're acting out what happened in real life. And I'm constantly amazed at how you see what God told us about human nature continuously confirmed by watching just normal, everyday, workaday people who get anger in their heart. They get an offense in their heart. 
and it stews and it festers and it boils and it broils and it gets worse and it becomes like a cancer until finally this little sweet lady next door kills somebody. And you can't believe she did it because she looks so sweet and kind. You can't believe it, and the jurors can't believe it either. Her? She's the one? What happened? What Jesus said. If you don't deal with anger in your heart, you could kill. So you see how he took the commandments and he said, I came to fulfill them. I came to tell you what they really meant and how and what leads to you breaking these commandments. He also came to fulfill the law and the prophets by perfectly living out the demands of the law, which is the only way that he could die for your sins and mine as a sacrifice lamb. It says he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. See, he never knew a sin. Can you imagine how it frustrated his brothers that their big bro never got spanked? Never got into trouble. I mean, this guy must have been maddening because here's his brothers. They're all got the sin nature. So, you know, they're always getting in trouble. Not Jesus. How come you're not getting on to Jesus? Because he didn't do anything wrong. What do you want me to get on to him for? He didn't do anything wrong. Well, you're always whipping us. You're always doing something wrong. But it's not fair. He never gets the belt. He never does anything wrong. I'd like to whip him, but I can't. He never does anything wrong. Can you imagine what it was be like growing up with a sibling like that? I mean, would you grow to dislike him? Does it remind you of Joseph and the coat of many colors and God favored him? And it must have been frustrating to his brothers. No wonder they didn't believe in him for a while. They didn't like him. He perfectly fulfilled the law. Can you imagine living a life where never once you ever had to say, God, forgive me, I shouldn't have done that. Jesus never did. Can you imagine that? Lord, I really messed up. I sinned. Please forgive me. He never had to say that. Because he never sinned. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us on the cross. God put on him all our sin, imputed it to him, blamed him for it, judged him for it, departed from him for a brief season on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he was bearing the sins of the entire human race. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was imputed. Jesus carried our sin, took our judgment, and we arose from the dead. Then God said, you put your faith in him and his perfect life, I'm going to impute to you. So that when I look at you, I don't see sin. Imperfect as we are, God doesn't see sin. I say it all the time, but he puts on rose-colored sunglasses. Rose-colored sunglasses, S-O-N, glasses. He only looks at you and me through sunglasses. And what does he see? He sees Jesus. Because he took his righteousness and imputed it to us. I know we're convicted about sin all the time. When was the last time you were convicted about righteousness? That he made you righteous. Aren't you so glad that when God looks at us now, we're no longer at war with him 
at odds with him. We're no longer separated from him. But he has totally received us through the blood of Christ. And we are the righteousness of God in Christ through him. Can we just thank the Lord for that tonight? Lord, we thank you tonight. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Now, verse 18, in wrapping it up tonight, Jesus reveals that he believes the scriptures are inerrant. That means without fault, without mistake. Jesus said in verse 18, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So Jesus told us right there, we can trust the Bible as the word of God. If you got your Bible with you, which I don't because I'm using an iPad, but if you got yours, can you just hold it up? Hold up your Bible real good and high. I want you to say with me, this is the word of God. Jesus said so. So I can trust it as being God's word to me. Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise. That is good stuff. Now in verse 19, he takes aim at the religious teachers of his day who are in the habit of categorizing God's commandments into greater or lesser ones, proving that they did not really believe it was the word of God because if it was the word of God, how can even the slightest word of God be any lesser than the greatest? So he was aiming this at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he said to them, never, and to us, never minimize any of the word of God. Do you know that I've had people say to me who decide to live in some kind of sin, somewhere, some type of sin. I've had them say to me, well, it's only mentioned in the Bible once. I have them say that to me. As if, since God didn't say it more than once, they were doing the very thing the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing here that Jesus said never to do. Never minimize any of the word of God. Amen. If it's said once, that's enough. If it's said once, clear as a bell, then that's good enough for us to say, you know what? The Bible can tell me what to do right there. Let me ask you that question tonight. Can the Bible tell you what to do? Can the Bible tell you what to do? If when I said that, something in you recoiled, you need to look at that. Because you see, Jesus as Lord means that the Bible tells us what to do. And if our emotions or our feelings disagree, we submit those emotions and feelings to the Word of God because the Bible can tell us what to do. There's a mass movement in America tonight. People saying, you know what? The Bible can't tell me what to do because I feel that this, that, or the other is true, not the Bible. But the Bible says if you follow your emotions, you're a fool. Because your emotions will run away with you and carry you into sin. The Bible can tell us what to do. So Jesus said even the slightest or smallest word of God, or with the least words, the, the smallest verse, don't ever minimize it. And then last, verse 20. Jesus gives us the front burner reason for why he came to earth. Here it is, the front burner reason. He said, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
What was the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? We've already talked about it. It was outward. It was action. It was behaving right. It was obeying as best they could the law outwardly. But how many of you know that have raised children? You can be sitting down on the outside but standing up on the inside. Right? And that's what happens with the commandments. See, the reason Jesus came is we can't live out the commandments. We can't do it. We can't behave exactly the way they say. We will eventually break one of the ten. And James said if you break one, you've broken them all. So Jesus had to come and be our righteousness for us. So he said if you don't exceed this outer show of righteousness, where everything is outward and nothing is inward, and have a change of heart that only I can bring, you will never, ever go to heaven. And that's why I came. I came to give you my righteousness. Because you're never going to achieve it on your own. Amen.